0: I mean, the, o- the only thing I can assume is that Charlie Watts was like so drunk he pooped himself. <laughs> like, oh, like, Charlie. <laughs> like, that's the only reasonable explanation. He right? was just unavailable, right? I mean, that drum beat hits the kit drum on one every eight beats. Like,. <laughs>
1: Welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends and musicians get together to break down an album from Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. We're gonna complain about it, laugh about it, do a little deep dive on the making of, and today we are going to be talking about The Rolling Stones' Let It Bleed. Very, very excited to get into that. I'm going to throw it around the room shortly, but I just wanted to mention that we have a little difference in the approach today, which is that we're all staring directly at each other. It's very odd. Yes. You're going to feel the
2: anger. Yeah. yeah. The <laughs> passive aggressiveness coming through. I can,
3: <laughs> I can smell the
1: Arby's right now coming <laughs> oh, off of...
0: I would love How did Arby's. we not get Arby's? We, yeah, I oh, missed right, opportunity. Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know whose eyes to look at or if I should just cast them <laughs> downward.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Let's start... Oh, you know what? First, we should kick on a little bit of music. For those who might not know, we're going to play the first track from the Rolling Stones' Let It Bleed. This track is called Gimme Shelter. That's done, and we heard a little bit of this band called The Rolling Stones that you may have heard of. I'd like to throw it around the room and get a tweet-length review of the album, Let It Bleed.
3: All right. Hey, everybody, this is Adam. For the first time in like three years today, I went to Burger King, and I got a double whopper with cheese, no onions, and a large fry. When you brought us nothing? And I brought you nothing, because... I don't know how to interact in public with other humans. All of my social norms and etiquettes have gone out the window. But as I was eating that, I fell into like a caloric coma. And while I was in that coma, I realized that I think I do actually like Mick Jagger's voice when it's overpowered by a woman and a children's chorus.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Alan, what do you have to say? I thought we
2: already did Let It Be. Oh, Let It Bleed. Okay, I gotcha. Slightly you. I got different. You. Uh, I, I never understood the Beatles comparisons. Uh, I still don't, but I did think this was a uh, a fun little ride. Oh, we're going to bookmark and come, come back to that. I have plenty of
1: information. May... <laughs> on Fuck. fake Beatles? Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Rob's prepared. <laughs> right
3: you
0: know, my, my take on the record for the week is really that like this record reminds me that there's a lot more to the Rolling Stones than the... 20 or 30 songs that you have been force fed for the whole of your life. And uh, many of those songs are sort of acoustic and show a side of the band that, uh, you know, rock radio doesn't play. And I find that I often like those songs, maybe because I'm unfamiliar with them, maybe because they're good.
1: Excellent. And this is Rob here. I wrote that the Rolling Stones drop some psychedelic 1960s baggage in the form of one Brian Jones and lean into American country and blues music and invent but don't quite perfect the loose, tight aesthetic. Nice. So, little background on these Rolling Stones. They've been a band for a little while now. Just a couple years. They're still out there. Up and comers. Keith Richards is still... (laughs) They do tour. To don't get it. I have some Keith Richards anecdotes. I mean, he is a true wild man of rock and roll. You cannot yeah, take that yeah. away from him. No, um, I wouldn't try to. Yeah. The man, and this is apparently not apocryphal, snorted his dead father's ashes. Oh, my. no.
2: <laughs> Maybe that's why he's going to live so long. What? <laughs> that's part of
0: it. He's yeah, been drinking yeah.
2: baby's blood for
1: 50 yeah, years. Yeah, I
0: mean, he has to imbibe his power. Right.
1: Yeah. So, look, the stones were originally formed in london in 1962 and they have been a going concern ever since then where this record finds them we're going to talk a little bit they obviously put out many many hits many many records in their time together and as we discussed on the u2 episode they have made the most money of any band touring in the last 40 years Cha-ching. without i should point out having a new hit in those 40 years wow what was
0: our last hit stop
2: me up
1: yeah one? the one
3: where he was walking through like, the city in the in the video right That no, what's love that?
0: is strong maybe no or... I, I
3: think it was start me up which was like what?
0: No, that one the one no. who's walking through the city is like late
3: night.
1: no i mean like he's like a giant yeah, yeah same one okay about. for some well, reason i'm saying right. of the top 50 rolling stone songs that the oh, world would yeah, identify yeah, yeah. they came out in the 60s and 70s sure and do not encompass that period But anyway, and they have a couple songs on Robert Dimery's list. And I'm going to come right out and say this isn't the best one on that list. All right. Thanks all for joining
3: us. We'll (laughs) talk to you next week where your homework assignment will be.
1: But they're an extremely important band. And in fact, I think they're one of the most underrated bands, at least in terms of what our generation right here thinks about them. And that's partly because they stuck around and we got to watch them grow old. (laughs) Yeah, and uh-huh. it kind of takes out the rock stardom when you see. Yeah,
2: well, they have become like kind of caric- like cartoonish. I think at this yeah. point, and it does. You do sort of. I mean, it's in that Springsteen vein where you're you, you kind of you just laugh at him a little bit well, at this point. But I, mean, I don't laugh at Springsteen ever. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's we're well No,
0: out. no, it, it, no. It's interesting you say that because like I think you're sort of you've watched Billy Joel and Elton John do similar like victory laps, I guess I'll call them. And it is weird there, but they're like, they're playing the character of Elton John. Elton John can't be that guy anymore. Right? Yeah. Like, you know. I, I
3: think like those, the singer songwriter, the Billy Joel's of the world are different than the rock stars because sure. I also go to Aerosmith. And now when I see those guys, it, it's kind of on the, not sad, but it's like, well, maybe it is sad. It's the nostalgia that knowing that these guys were at the top of their game when I was 10 years old. And I looked up to them like, Oh my, these are, these are gods on earth and then you know when you, you you pluck a god and he bleeds and you're like oh he's it's not actually a god now i'm seeing you
1: know just a quick correction there aerosmith were on their first or second
2: comeback
1: when you were 10, <laughs> 10 <laughs> years old all right touche yes oh, yes first comeback, right? all right yeah fun?
2: i kind of think a lot about uh like so my parents i grew up listening to a lot of grateful dead unwittingly in my house because that's what my, my parents listen to and so i like had this kind of Myth-, myth mythologized sure. idea of jerry garcia and then when i finally saw what he looked like when he was old and not with it right. my it, my impression was not good yeah and then i had to learn later on that like you know he wasn't always this
0: he does he does have like a, a santa claus's edgy younger brother vibe right, <laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> All right.
4: True story.
1: okay so let but but here we have to transport ourselves back understanding these old bands is, is always about context, but particularly a band like the Rolling Stones who have had so such a long career. I want to talk a little bit about the context of where the Rolling Stones were at at this time. We can talk about music a little bit at this time, but just to set the scene of where they were and why I think this record could be important, and then we can debate its, its relative value. So the band was kind of at a natural breakpoint. They went into the studio to record this in 1969, and the main thing that was going on was that the founding member, an original lead singer, and kind of the original creative lead of the group, Brian Jones, was spiraling out of control, almost Sid Barrett style, on drugs, barely able to play his instruments, not showing up for sessions, and kind of seemed like he wanted out. So, what happens in relatively quick succession is they fire him from the band, and a month later, he drowns in his pool. Good God. There's uh, some conspiracy theories about uh, how he drowned by the way, but it was ruled a death by a misadventure, which is a great it term. It's a very British term,
3: right? We've <laughs> seen we've seen that before, I feel, it, it, on this podcast, <laughs> is that British definition of
1: death by misadventure. At a
0: high level, can you just speculate on some of those conspiracy theories for me?
1: Yeah, well there was, <laughs> was a, apparently a construction foreman who was on the premises while he drowned that he owed money to, who was mm-hmm. kind of a tough guy. Okay. So that and supposedly this is don't quote me on this, that that guy on his deathbed admitted to killing <laughs> Brian Jones.
4: Oh, oh okay. Wow.
1: But the case was never reopened. It was ruled a death by misadventure, not a suicide. He was definitely had a lot of drugs in his system. And it was said that when the Rolling Stones heard about this, they are obviously very upset about it, but Keith was the first one to break the tension. They said, hey, Brian Jones has died. And Keith said, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus because it's sad but it's because if they he was knew, on that path right? he was yeah. on
2: that path it's almost like a relief for everybody probably oh, at that point God. rip the Band-Aid off kind of
1: thing the other weird thing is that Brian Jones had bought the pool he drowned in was at the estate of A.A. A. Milne the guy who wrote Winnie the Pooh and so I'm always just and apparently there are all these Winnie the Pooh statues like of, of Pooh and Eeyore oh, wow. and Piglet uh, around the pool these big gothic statues i just feel like that's a it's kind of a dark it's scene it's weird
0: Place to take a ton of acid. Yes. Right.
1: Well, these guys definitely <laughs> or took a, a lot great of acid. place to take a ton of acid. <laughs> yes.
0: So Brian
1: Jones was kind of well, like again, he was the founding father. He got pushed out of the way by Jagger and Richards relatively early as a front and also as the lead writers in the band. But he was considered a lot of the creative impetus behind the band. And so they were in the process of moving on from him already, but they officially fired him. And he barely appears on this record. He's credited on two of the songs, but you can they mixed him out. Oh, He's wow. basically not on this record. So this is really the first post-Brian Jones record. And it kicks off a new era for the Rolling Stones that would set them into the 70s, where I think they do do some of their best work. So in my opinion, some of the records that follow this, Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street in particular, do represent the Stones' best work. This is the beginning of that.
2: What was the dynamic before? So I, I'm sure that Keith had to take over... Take, do more of the heavy lifting with guitar? How was that before? Because I'm not like super familiar with their their catalog.
1: That's a good question. I don't know if they... I don't think they had super well-assigned lead and rhythm roles, if that's what you're asking. I think that Brian was considered a multi-instrumentalist. And they did a kind of a lot of different things. You got to keep in mind that when they were formed back in the early 60s, it was a pure blues band. They weren't really anything like the early Beatles, say and we can talk about why they were being pitted against the Beatles was pure marketing strategy on from their manager. He's the one that figured out that they could put them as two sides of a coin, the Rolling Stones being the bad boys and the Beatles ah, being the good guys. Brilliant. And there was they were friends
2: through the whole thing. They were never rivals.
1: You write that down for Mega. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds <laughs> me this
2: it was weird digression, but there was that uh you ever see that documentary? I think it was called like don't fuck with cats or something. Yes. You ever heard of that? And so it's just like sociopathic guy who ended up being like a serial killer. His, he had this like marketing tactic for his modeling career where he would call press outlets saying like, hey, I'm I'm done feuding with so-and-so. I'm tired of this. And he would drop some celebrity's name. But then like the other guy had to come out and be like, hey, I don't know this person, but it, it got his, his name, name into, right. the, into the mix in this in this really like grimy kind of way. Maybe that's what they did. Yeah, as long yeah. as we're talking
1: about the role of these these old school managers, so I liked. I think the guy's name was Oldham, but he was with the Rolling Stones from a very early age. But he really had some interesting plays for them. One is he pushed Brian Jones out of the front of the band and put Jagger in the front. He told Keith and Mick to start writing songs together, which became an extremely fruitful musical writing partnership for a very long time. He kicked the keyboard player, this guy Ian Stewart. Who actually is yeah, on this uh-huh. on this album? He kicked him out of the band. He was a founding member of the band, and he was like, "You're basically you're too fat, and you don't look like these other guys." You're, oh, he, looked, he was
0: older too. He was like ten years older. He oh, was a little older and more square
1: jawed. A it's little not, too. It's
0: not. It's not as sad as it sounds. Keep going. A
1: little too working class, but they kept him on as a tour manager, and he continued playing yep. with them.
0: Oh, that's, touring with them. I, I now fear for my place right. in, in yeah, the band yeah. if if being fat he, and out of shape gets you kicked out. I saw an interview. I saw an interview with him once. It was, it was actually an audio snippet like over some Stones footage, probably from like a rock documentary that's well known. Sure. but And I just don't know. But yeah, he sort of talks about that, that conversation. Yeah. And, he was, and, and, how, uh, and how he was heartbroken but also sort of like immediately understood what this guy was saying and was like (laughs) sort of like... He's not a shirtless rock star. We got a bunch of skinny (laughs) guys in like
1: jackets here. Uh, You don't really work with this aesthetic.
0: Well, well, he did say, I think he was like 10 or 12 years older than like Keith or Mick, whichever one of those is younger. So like, you know, it was already a bit of a thing and it was already like a older brother, uncle relationship. So they
3: would just stick him behind the speaker stack. Like again, going back to Aerosmith, like that guy who does all the Steven Tyler backups and plays keyboards, he's like hidden. But behind it, a curtain, totally, but totally, he's right there playing with actually him live. It's funny
0: you say that, because I saw Aerosmith once with you on my birthday, and I remember seeing the douche from where we sat. There was literally a curtain, and some dude behind the curtain with keyboards singing all these things above Steven yes. Tyler's. Yes, who's already, that guy?
2: He's the best musician yeah, on stage. Yeah, well, you're uh-huh. too fat for the band. I figured, like, just give him, like, a six-month coke regimen. That'll right? <laughs> like, it sort itself out, I think, in, in no time. But
0: anyway, he definitely commented that like you know it was it was uh, an important transitional moment and when you think about bands that are like really successful they have these weird behind the scenes players yeah, yeah and yeah. he's in a, he plays an important role in them being yeah. able to scale up the lights and the stage show and even early on just shit works yeah, right. Right. Like right. You have somebody who's been in the band is like, "This is broken. This sound sucks." Yeah. Like, you know, front of house guy, you suck. And like, he's a, and he's a great player. He plays totally. on this and he plays on
1: a bunch of their totally. albums. He, there's a couple of piano players or keyboard players on this record, other than him, but he adds a lot of flavor to them. And I get the impression too, the Stones were a band who were really into early on, really into just playing with as many musicians as possible.
0: You know, this is really interesting. I'm just thinking of this for the first time as a Beatles comparison. So in... The Let It Be documentary, there's a lot of talk specifically from Harrison, where he's like, we should get Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton, and it's the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, and we'll do a show and a tour, and we'll get everybody. Yeah. And in that way, maybe that is, it's, I mean, it's like 1969, it's the same time, right? Yeah, yeah. In a weird way, like the Rolling Stones inadvertently realized that dream, right, while the Beatles are yeah. like sort of falling apart.
1: Well, that's the other theme that I want to mention here, which is, I think that the Rolling Stones, they're recording this in 69 which is as the Beatles are imploding. The Beatles Mm -hmm. breakup doesn't become public until early 1970. But I really think that the Beatles breaking up lifted a weight from the Rolling Stones and allowed them to get much better. In that they their competition had evaporated, yeah, and that this false narrative of them being oh pitted rivals against them, like it wasn't yeah. hanging over them, or that they anymore. had to be compared to everything they're they're drastically they different bands. They didn't need bands. to respond
0: yeah. to the Beatles anymore; like there was some kind of rap battle, you know. Right. <laughs> and
1: and that was one of the things they had done leading up to this. They had kind of been in their minds led astray, which is to say they followed the psychedelic cues of the Beatles. They recorded a Sgt. Pepper's knockoff, effectively called Her Satanic Majesty's Request. Mm-hmm. They were also sort of following the, the line of the 60s generally, and getting, lost, getting away from what they actually were originally, which was a rhythm and blues band uh, who loved Chicago blues coming out of America, right? That's what they started as. Their early hits were that. And by the way, they have some terrific early hits. I'm talking pre-painted black stuff. And then... Starting with Painted Black, they kind of were accused, rightfully, of following the Beatles. Painted Black has a sitar on it. Norwegian Wood has a sitar on it. They probably felt like they had to keep up. But they ultimately, at this moment, they were like, hey, we've kind of lost our way. We need to get back to basics.
0: What's really interesting about this hypothesis of yours is that there's another data point, which is Brian Wilson. Who, Mm. without the counterweight of the Beatles, spirals off into the darkness, right? So, like, in a weird way, like, it's not a direct line, but you do at least have another data point, right? Somebody else who was sort of, like, pulling at that rubber band. Sure. Well, just imagine being (laughs) a
1: musician making records while the Beatles were making records. That's a tough act to follow in any regard. Well, especially
4: with
2: their volume, too, and and just... They were just so prolific. Yeah. And I
3: almost feel like that, uh, the Beatles going away, would actually not only take the weight off your shoulders, but actually allow you to be creative. Like you know when when you try to force yourself to come up with a good idea, you're not actually usually coming up with a good idea, right? It's like when Definitely when, not the way it works. When <laughs> when you remove uh-huh. when you have those shower moments where you're not focused on something, like maybe this was the stones with the Beatles being gone that can actually take a breather and be like, oh thank God, we don't have to we don't have to try to compete. Maybe we could actually just be ourselves now.
2: Well, I wonder though, as you're as you're saying this, Rob, like, where did the pressure come from? Like, why would there? Why do you need to be the best? The best? Like, you know what I mean? Like, isn't there room for many good bands? Like, where was that pressure really coming from?
1: From themselves, I'm sure. You know, from no one in particular. But I just have a feeling. This is just a hypothesis. I didn't hear them say this directly, but I think they they definitely knew the Beatles were imploding. I should mention that in particular, Keith and John were really close, drug buddies, really. Okay. <laughs> And but hung out constantly, and I just think that was a Keith factor here. And John Lennon, Keith and John Lennon, yeah, we're yeah. we're good good friends. Definitely did a lot of heroin together, yes. a lot of LSD together, and I you know continue hanging out through the seventies and stuff. The other, I think, big thing that happened that influenced this record is that Keith met a guy called yeah. Graham Parsons. Ooh,
0: I, was, I thought you were going to say something else. He's back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, I wasn't here for the Flying Burrito Brothers episode, and I have to admit, I didn't love that record either. I think you guys kind of panned it, that Graham Parsons is a part of. But I do really like the Graham Parsons solo work a lot. And I think that Graham Parsons and Graham Parsons was also in The Birds during their later years where they transitioned into more of a country rock band. And he's just cited, I think, rightfully as, as an in, not an inventor, but certainly a popularizer of modern country rock. So anyway, Keith meets him right at the time the Birds put out Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which Grant Parsons was a part of. They hit it off instantly. They do lots of drugs together.
2: Keith likes drugs. (laughs) It's a common thread here.
1: Wait a (laughs) minute. Actually, the anecdote I heard is that he sees – Keith goes to see the birds at some London club probably, expecting to hear Mr. Tambourine Man. Instead, they're this country rock, sweetheart of the rodeo type thing with Graham Parsons more having taken the creative lead. He hooks up with Graham backstage. The birds are about to go on a tour of South Africa, and Keith is like – hey, man, apartheid is a thing. And Grant Parsons like, I've never heard of that. And then after Keith explains it to him, he's like, that's effed up. I'm quitting the birds tonight. Oh, shit. <laughs> and he did. What? I remember Tom mentioning that on the,
3: or maybe it was you, Grandpa, on, the, on the Burrito Brothers yeah. episode. And they thought that uh, there was also something with somebody had a crippling fear of flying. And they thought that maybe it was Graham Parsons. And he he said he didn't want to Go fly to South Africa or something was an excuse. But maybe it sounds like maybe I don't know because he wanted to hang out and do drugs with Keith Richards. Graham
0: Parsons is a strange creative force in the late 60s, early 70s. Sure. And he makes some great stuff, even though some of it is some I I like this word maximalist that's been thrown around. Mm. He's a strange sort of country rock maximalist. But his influence on the people he works with is very clear and positive.
1: I think he made at least one great record that i know is on the list we'll get to it eventually it's called the grievous angel or return of the grievous angel maybe and but he, he's not only a great songwriter but in, in this case what he did was he really introduced keith or maybe reminded him of the american country tradition records that keith had listened to in the past and the guys like grant parsons and the birds were trying to expand beyond and get mash that up with psychedelia. And mm-hmm. as we've said so many times in this podcast, break away from the so-called Nashville sound. <laughs> right. Right. And try to take Americana music and country music. So anyway, so he was a big influence. He's not actually on this record at all, but Keith did meet him kind of right before this and became, felt like they were old friends immediately. He ends up playing on later Stones records. There's even a rumor, I believe not true, that he wrote the song Wild Horses. Uh, I believe it's just because he actually released it before the Stones did, but Keith did write that. So anyway, so as you can tell, right? This this record is mostly a country record, Mm -hmm. right? And I I do want to get into how they do their guitars and stuff like that because it is—they're remarkably more acoustic than you might think. I'm going to
0: drop—that's my big thing on the record. I'm
1: going to drop one thing on you. Surprised? You know this? It's not on this record, but you guys know the song "Jumpin' Jack Flash." Mm -hmm. Of course, there is no electric guitar on that song. Hmm. Huh. What Keith was doing... Really? Yes. So that so part of this whole thing, part of this renaissance for the Stones was Keith's renaissance with guitar, where he was looking to sound like no one else, and he finds open tuning, which was something blues players were using for slide. But he said, well, I want to use it for more than just slide. And... I don't remember the whole lineage of where he took each piece from, but basically he cobbles together a version of an open G tuning and open E tunings where he doesn't use the low E string. So he's playing a five string guitar. And that is the key to like all, all the stones. I I, was going to, yeah, keep going. And that's what's on the Jumpin' Jack flash record. The Mm -hmm. other thing he was doing experimenting with sound is they were, he loved the sound. He had this little tape machine, like tape player. Mm -hmm. So he would record the acoustic guitar. Then he would play it back and use the tape machine as an amp, because if you cranked it all the way, you'd get like it's a little distortion. distortion. No. And so you're hearing like a mic cassette playback on Jumpin' Jack Flash and a bunch of the other tracks. Crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Wow. I don't all even,
0: right. even want to begin to think about like how you... Uh, "Quote unquote," set a metronome to that, and then get everybody else to like click into that. But that's a whole other like Rolling
3: you know. Stones don't need metronome. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. that's painfully obvious. You in the can second tell. version of Honky Tonk Woman, <laughs>
4: right? Yeah,
0: uh, that yeah that's that's really interesting. I, I'm familiar with the tuning, and I actually it was, it was one of my primary questions about the first track on the record is like I, I've I've heard it referred to as the right cooter tuning
1: yeah i think um, he was definitely yeah, they, yeah they and, were I, mad and he was an influence for sure and
0: I, I think he might even be on this record on a couple of tracks like he's in and around the band i believe
1: he's like. definitely around the band and like rye cooter was playing i think in a band at that time with that blues guitar player taj mahal yep yeah cool and so i think they learned from him they hung out with him yeah and again they were just trying to dig into the old records that they loved and try to take you know stuff like howlin wolf and muddy waters and kind of where is back this to record that- recorded Mostly at Olympic Studios in London, Okay, but they did do overdubs in L.A. Uh So let's just do a quick Stones by the Numbers, and then let's go into some of the songs and we'll talk about the recording process a little bit. So I already mentioned they were formed back in 1962. This record was recorded primarily in 1969, also released at the end of 1969. The Stones continue on to today. They have a total of 30 studio albums, Nine of them went to number one. They've sold a grand total of 240 million records. (laughs) This represents the eighth studio album by the band. It hit number one in the UK, but only number three in the US. Wait, this album? Yeah. Number one? Wow. Number one in the, in the UK. In the UK, okay. So Number maybe they
2: lost the to uh, Cosmos Factory because that was that 69. Was well, that's
3: interesting you say that because if I'm that alien landing on Earth and Rob with the CCR, you had said that this is uh, the Cosmos Factory is what you would put in front of the aliens to say this is you know yeah. a, a American country rock or whatever it was. If I didn't know the Stones were a British band, totally.
1: I absolutely mm-hmm. would have thought that this totally. was a oh, southern they, they, rock you know, they nailed the Americana. They, like, yeah. I feel like yeah, they're, right. really they're right. the most American. No, and they keep it going for the next three records. I
0: don't, I don't know if it's discussed. There's a, there's a Rolling Stones. It might be a history of rock and roll thing. Maybe it's a Stones documentary. But there's a, there's a really nice segment that talks about the Stones' trip to the U.S., where they tour through the South and they meet a lot of these blues players who are opening up for them. They sort of idolized. And I think it's their first trip through Muscle Shoals.
4: Mm, And it
0: basically just, they talk a little bit about basically just being able to bond with these black musicians who are all caught up in the civil rights movement, along with just like the friction back and forth, like just with white people in America at the time and how like it seemed very clear to the Stones and very clear to the musicians that like they didn't live in that culture, and they were able to just like immediately submerge themselves and just like friendship and music and like what a what a important trip that was for the band. It's, just a, it's a cool. I think it's is, is that history of rock and roll. I feel like I'm uh, not it's, sure exactly it's a very where that clear... is. There's so many Stones
1: documentaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, you're totally right, and that is. You know, like I think all British musicians at that time, they really idolized what was going on in America, but it also seemed very foreign and distant Mm -hmm.
4: to
0: them.
1: Though they would just get the records from R and B artists coming out of America, idolize them.
0: Well, because it's like they're they're interested in the American underground. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it's not even like what's hot in America. It's like what's like it's like it's 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 the next level of like what's interesting in America.
1: Totally. And they ended up releasing their next record which I would vote as the best Rolling Stones record, Sticky Fingers in Muscle Shoals. Mhm.
4: Mm. Mm-hmm. Got that Makes sense.
1: It. Okay. Okay. Let's I got I got more to say about the sound and how it was recorded, but I say we go through some more of the tunes and talk about it in that context. So let's drop somewhere in the middle of Gimme Shelter again. If I don't get some shelter. Adam, lay it on me, buddy.
3: This song sounds like it was recorded in a different studio by a different band 10 years after everything else on the album. So I was really confused, not confused, but it gave me a false sense of what the rest of the album was going to be because everyone and their mother knows this song. It is a great song. I mean, a remarkable song, Uh, but I just, In comparison to the rest of the tunes, uh, it just felt really out of place, just from a production standpoint and even a composition standpoint. A standout song, but just didn't match the rest of the album. But yeah, I love this tune.
1: So I wrote two words, sonic alchemy. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is one of the best produced tracks by this band, certainly, ever. And with so many of these interlocking parts, 100% vibe, right? They nailed it. It's a super successful song. We've all heard it. We've used it similar to those Creedence songs to just, five seconds of this song puts you in a mood, puts you in a decade, it's stormy, it's great. But to Adam's point, yeah, I totally agree. I I do think there are some sister arrangements of this on the album. And I kinda noticed that more when I gave it a deep listen and listened to some of the deeper cuts that we'll talk about them on on our focus list, but none as successful as this, certainly. So they were very smart to put this first. So the point is, I agree that the album is a little bit of a pastiche, and that is a little bit of where it suffers. Although I actually like these different modes of the Rolling Stones. This kind of dark and stormy, interlocking, rhythms a little akimbo. The riffs play off different instruments at different times. And this backing vocal is just unreal. Oh, it's just
2: belting. I mean, it's like... I think this was a first or second take. I think it was kind of one of those same deals as, like, uh, Great Gig in the Sky. Right. Where it's like, just come in, bang it out. I mean, this, this... I think this is one of the best rock songs ever. like this is definitely my favorite stone song, although I'm not an aficionado, but it's just great. I, I think even there's not a lot of like dynamic changes either. you know, it's sort of like kind of same tempo, it's just like chugging along, but it's got all these different elements, like it's moody, it's it's just fucking awesome.
1: But they have this way of just using all the different instruments and the vocals. Let me just say, in general, the through line with the Rolling Stones is that they always sound like they're kind of improvising and might fall apart at any moment. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the uh-huh. the wheels could come off the band, at any the moment. The band is the
0: same way. Yeah. And what, there's not a lot of other bands that, that do that that's effectively. The, that's the loose, tight esthetic uh-huh, yeah, It right. kind yeah. of
1: feels like the wheels might come off, but they're actually in tight control. Totally. And I think they even structure the songs that way. There's nothing strum... There's no strumming on a song like this. It's all these little pieces of things.
0: And in a broader way, this is clearly like a thought that is being had by many, right? At this time, let it be is sort of the same vibe, right? Sort of loose tight. Um, the band, I mean, all the Motown stuff is like that, but I would, I would hypothesize that what you see in the stones and the Beatles and the band is maybe not the band as much, but at least the Stones and the Beatles, a bit of response to that, to what's coming out of Motown and like that pocket, right?
2: Yeah. It's, it's, I feel like I've seen this in so many movies, too, where it just sets like a mood, like specifically thinking of uh, that Goodfellas scene where yeah. Ray Liotta is told, you know, hey, no, no, no dealing coke. And then it just cuts to this montage of them doing and selling like insane amounts of coke. And it runs to this song for a few minutes and it's just perfect.
0: So, so let me talk about this song for a second because my instant reaction to the song popping on is a little different. Like my instant reaction to it coming on is, "Oh God, not again," <laughs> right? And that's like not the song's fault, that's not the Rolling Stones fault, but I mean, just after you know, forty plus years of just being Classic inundated, rock yeah, radio, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, there's other Stones songs I feel the same way about. <laughs> There's
2: one of which we'll probably talk about in yeah. The
0: yeah. Yeah. Well the one the one that I really think of is actually a terrible stone song, which is Shattered, which I know you oh, love. Oh, <laughs> but can't like, stand that that's trash. That's yeah, trash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, it's like so, sex so and my sax. <laughs> Sorry. So bad. So my initial instinct is like, oh no. But as I listen, like it really does just pull you in. Like it has that guitar, like the, the tremmy one, you know, that is sort of like. I'll
3: Sounds call- like he's like, plucking it too. Yeah, like that.
0: totally. And I'll, yeah. I'm going to guess that's the Keith Richards, like Ry Cooder, like tuning Style.
1: guitar. Oh, the rhythm the tuning, rhythm right. guitar is in open E. Yeah. And the lead's in standard. And I think it's all played by Keith in this case.
0: Yeah, it's cool. It's very cool.
1: Yeah, to me this doesn't even though I've heard it a million times, and I should mention the vocalist we just mentioned Mary Clayton, the background vocalist. Two things about her. One is, yeah, she was called in last minute uh, a nighttime session and bang this out in a couple takes. And that was done in LA months after they recorded this take. So just imagine for a wow. second this track without that. Like they were they had the rest of the band and they were like, it's missing
2: something. <laughs> it's a song, but... And they were right. Wow. Well, when she comes in, too, it sounds like the song is really peaking, and you expect like, this is... Okay, this and is she like... She just starts blast, yeah. But then it cuts back in. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's Right, it so, does
1: come back, yeah. So think about the fact that she wasn't in it initially, and then go to 2.43. There's a long musical break from when it was recorded with the band, and then Mary Clayton comes in and just fills it out masterfully and carries you through to the next part.
4: Bumps yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah,
3: yeah. The squeal that she does, yeah, the little voice that, crack, we, crack, that it yeah. cracked, but it is so perfect. Is this
2: like a gospel singer?
1: I it had like I don't actually I don't know much about her background. I think she was just a session worker. She was covered extensively. She's one of the main focuses of that documentary, Twenty Feet from Stardom. Oh, and I know uh, that was,
3: she, uh, Justin Timberlake wasn't that about? No, I it's remember. all
1: about backup singers. A documentary. Oh, okay, sorry. I and I they cover they I cover thought. her and a couple other people who. Fam- we're on a bunch of, we're fa- on famous tracks. Mary Clayton was also singing back up on, speaking of songs that we can't stand listening to anymore, Mary Clayton also sang back up on Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, God.
3: <laughs> I, I almost mentioned the Sweet Home Alabama Syndrome with this but, song. To, but yeah, but yeah. to me,
1: why it doesn't fall into that, partly it's because there is no discernible chorus really. Mm-hmm. It has a longer, expansive format that I can kind of just relax into and
2: forget I'm listening to. It's funny that you mentioned that because. It, I I have not had that effect that the Sweet Home Alabama Tom you know American Girl effect where like or the you know the, the, the CCR songs where you're just like oh god it feels fresh to me every time I listen to it and it is all over the place but there's something about it that really it's there's something just novel that doesn't I, it I, it never feels like oversaturated to me
0: that makes sense I they're like Pink Floyd songs and Beatles songs that you know the first couple notes always like it, it always feels like the first time. You right. know, and I'm like, that's cool. I, feels I, like you know? the
3: very first time. Yeah. <laughs> Can we drop that in here? Never mind.
1: Oh, it's in. <laughs> I have to agree. I think the song is great. I, I don't get tired of it, and it is partially because nothing else sounds like it, which is a it's a real rarity on this earth. So good, good job. Okay, let's have our conversation take a turn.
2: <laughs> why? And,
1: why would you say that, Rob? And
2: go to... Speaking of Alabama... <laughs>
1: and go to the track Country Honk. Okay, some quick context. This is a rehash of a song they had already released that was a huge hit for them called Honky Tonk Woman. This came after that Honky is, Tonk Woman. Uh, I thought this was oh, like a right. demo. <laughs>
3: and oh, then that's hon- correct. Oh my god. That makes this three times as worse
2: <laughs> than what it already was. When I was listening to it, I didn't realize that. And I was just like, what I was like, man, this sounds exactly like <laughs> one of their other songs. Why would they do that? And then yeah, it's like they put the demo out after.
1: <laughs> they did. They did. And they even said that, that that was their impetus for it was that this was the original conception of the song. Uh. Hey, we already went and made it better. We made it a hit. I'm not in love with that song either, for the record. <laughs> yeah.
2: But it's a hit. It's
1: better than this. For right. sure. It's definitely better than yeah. this.
2: Why? Well, <laughs> although I do think I did write down that we talked about their sort of like how they seem American. This was. I. I was listening to this thinking like, man, they really, even though this is weak, they nailed just like no, the Appalachia I, sound. Like right. I feel like I was like sitting True. on a, yeah. on a front you... stoop, like listening to, you know, the locals so, yokels play.
0: I was unfamiliar with this take of the song. I did not assume that it was the demo. I, I assumed it was what Rob explained okay, for some okay. strange reason. I don't know why I assumed that. I actually kind of like it. Caveat. Gotta get through the first twenty-five or thirty seconds, which are basically like the worst kind of sonic assault, because they're like they're actual real-world sounds. It's like a guitar and a horn beeping and yeah, like a horn. bike wheel yeah, spinning. Right. Like they're real sounds, and you have this strange. Can you can you name one time when
1: putting a car horn <laughs> no. on a record was a good idea? I wait. Listened, did Paul Simon do that in dude, Cars Are Cars? I,
0: dude, I listened. I listened to this on the way over here today. Just like, you know, just going to, you know, refresh. So I pop this on the whole, the whole, the whole focus list. And when the car horn honked, I looked around for the person I'd cut off. (laughs) Then I looked for flashing blue and red lights. Then I realized it's just this fucking song.
2: And that's when the ether began to take hold.
3: (laughs) I will say horns are appropriate in one song. Which is, there's a song on the 1991 Michael Jackson Dangerous album, mm. and it might be called She's So Fine. No, no, it's called...
0: <laughs> duh, dun, duh, she's got the look. Oh, and there's a I, car horn in it. I that. thought you were going to say Speed Demon,
3: ah, which is on, okay. on
0: bad. It's okay. got like a... Speed Demon.
3: You know bad a lot worse. Or a lot worse. Yeah, maybe a lot worse than I do. Nobody should know.
0: I know that very well.
1: I I think I put this on as the low point of the record. I actually don't think it's all that bad, but I definitely don't think it's good. I don't think it makes much sense. I think the fiddle is mixed way too high. I think the guitar is like slightly out of tune. I know I'm playing Adam's role here. (laughs) It does sound if they were going for, hey, this sounds like your drunk uncle's on the porch. Yes. It sounds like that. Totally. Absolutely. I
0: mean if your drunk uncle sounds like this, your drunk uncle's nailing it. Right? right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. like if you're True. if you're sitting on the porch of your uncle playing like this, like that's a good night, right?
3: I think that this was Charlie Watts' redemption song because in the the normal version of Honky Tonk Woman, it increases by 16 beats per minute from like the 5 second mark to the 305 mark. It's just unbelievably just terrible. Keeping the beat, okay. this one, this one stays on tempo. So well done, Charlie Watts. I think this was him wanting to reclaim Justing some off the metronome. Yes, reclaim his drummer status.
1: I, all, all yeah, all things considered, it sounds okay for an Appalachian porch band, <laughs> for a jug band. <laughs> but I think. But here is what I will say. <laughs> Well, this is more indicative of what's on the rest of the record, but I just think they I do agree. this style much better on some of the other tracks. This, this yeah, is I'll actually
0: the the sound of the Rolling Stones that doesn't show up on the radio. That I actually maybe this is this is yeah over the top, but like we'll talk about it more. But I like this. Part I like of the it Rolling a lot. Stones. I think yeah. they have great
1: tunes in this yeah. vein.
0: I agree.
2: That was one sort of eye opener for me in going through this because like I hadn't hadn't really. I mean, I've gone through like Exile on Main Street a few times, but I hadn't gone through this or many other mm-hmm. ones, like sort of front to back. And I was definitely taken by the the country and just how like authentic it really does sound. And, and you don't, you're right. You don't hear that much of it. As frustrating
0: as it is, like Mick Jagger is like on time and in tune always. Yeah, he's great. Adam has. <laughs>
1: I want to talk. Back. Can we there hold, let's, let's hold right, our yeah, comments right. on Mick Jagger's vocalist. Right. I think the next two songs are going to give us some opportunities. Right, I, have, right. I have thoughts as well, but let's let's keep it rolling along. Let's go on to the next track on our focus list called "Let It Bleed."
3: slow down the track or did he maybe he got like a bad Botox shot in his face and like everything I
0: don't maybe he went to the dentist and they like
3: and the Novocaine was wearing off as the song progressed the the
2: real question is what what sounded more abrasive lean on or cream on (laughs) did not age well I mean geez like let's let's I mean let's get some like metaphor at least
3: (laughs) I he does this thing where he he just does the vocal affectations, right? Yeah. He, he's almost playing a character of himself at times, and that's when I like him the least. I feel like, I've said it before, right? When you hear somebody's true voice, that's when I really appreciate it. I feel like he does so much of a put-on. Maybe it's because of the style, or he thinks that country music had a sound for singers, so he really wanted to get a twang or something, but yeah, that, uh
1: Yeah, this was probably the Nashville Skyline era of Bob Dylan, too, where he just decided to have a completely different voice for an album. (laughs) It's very confusing.
0: And then at later times would come back and caricature himself. Right, right, right. Odd. odd.
1: Yeah. So I, I like this song, but I have to agree the vocal is affect is, is a little distracting and I have some nostalgia for this song, but, but to take it back to what we we're talking about country honk, this version of the stones is actually the mode of the stones I like the most. And it's partly because I haven't been inundated with it mm-hmm. through their hits. So whether it's songs like this or dead flowers or shine a light on exile, I think this is
2: actually when they do some of their best work. I do think, aesthetically, this does it for me. Um, it is a little bit sloppy, and I don't normally get hung up on this stuff, but I, I think we need to listen to, I think it's like around 2.03. Oh, I noted that, too. <laughs>
1: okay. I have it <laughs> as well. I have it as well.
2: You- I know, it, but just so listeners
1: know what to yeah. listen for, <laughs> yes. the keys, at least the keys, hit the chord change a full beat after the drums
4: do. <laughs> hey, hey. and if you want to, where is the cream?
3: They somehow all managed to be surprised by that change <laughs> in
1: a, in a,
0: like in talking, a
1: 12-bar even... blues song. Well, I didn't know it was going to the
0: floor God, right what there. What a fucking sonic collision.
1: There's no time. There's no time. <laughs> well, done. these guys, listen, these guys definitely weren't Steely Dan in there <laughs> pouring over everything. It was a totally different aesthetic. Sure, and you can, sure. You can complain about that or not, right? But they were definitely more about live band and working it out with improv. And moving on to other things. And they were also famous at this time. So, you know, mix flying I, off to do a movie in Australia. It's I, like schedules. I'm
0: just going to say this about that particular hit. The guy who mixed the record had the choice to mute <laughs> any totally. instrument or number of instruments just for that hit. He could have just gone click. And Click, right back and, no problem. It reminds me of
2: that. You guys probably remember this, but the uh I don't know, Adam, if you were into that like old Leo Kottke, the Armadillo album. But do you no. remember that one song where it sounds like he breaks a string, yeah, or it's something? Break. It's just like, yeah, yeah, and it's like, you could have easily gotten rid of this.
1: It, it must be, we, but we've we've hit on these so many of these, right? These must yeah. be purposeful. I mean, yes. even though they were improvisational band, they had a lot of money behind this project, and they definitely worked on the mixing. You know, like you said, the mix and. This was a major label release, so it was
0: ultimately purposeful.
2: Sure. sure, yeah, it. I mean, it does give it like a like a crunchy so this, organic this feel.
0: This song has four things that I'd like to comment on. Mm. I'll, I'll give them to you in chronological chronological order, the best of my ability. Okay. So first of all, what the fuck happens at zero zero, right? <laughs> because like you hear this crazy loud like a uh, slide sound and it's like all blown out and distorted. And then that like crossfades and the song starts, right? Mm. You sort of experience, but like, this is just noise that is added to the beginning of the song. Right. Let's just, let's just, hear just, it just real give it a taste. it a taste. <laughs> right. Like you hear it fade out. Number two the next four or five seconds of this song is just night moves. Like, Bob Seger just stole yeah. second seven to ten and turned it into night moves. Wow.
2: That's awesome. I never thought of that. And I love night moves, too.
0: <laughs> Me,
4: too. I love night moves.
2: They steal like an artist. Yeah. Right?
0: The, the other two things are things that actually happen on Gimme Shelter as well. There's this, like, signature Rolling Stones drum sound. I don't know how they make this happen, but it's like they choose when the reverb triggers on the snare drum it's like sometimes when he hits the snare drum just so hard the reverb triggers it's really prominent on painted black which is yes right but you actually hear a subtler version of that all over this record it's really cool um
1: i'll have to go back and re-listen. so so the we should mention we haven't talked about the producer of this record a guy's called jimmy miller and he is a drummer cool okay
0: the drums sound great. Yeah, they do. <laughs> the other the other thing it's kind of in the same ballpark but you know there's something there. there's something about the way they mix the bass with the piano we're just like, like piano plays a lot of like low left hand sort of stuff. And there's just something with the way it like overdrives together that is.
1: I think this piano part is great. really cool. Gra- it's really, really great. Cool. Yeah, yeah, this is that guy Ian Stewart playing yeah. piano. And it has a real cool New Orleans jazz kind of vibe.
0: Uh, the thing that I like about it, well, not about it the most, but I, I just think is sonic alchemy, right? Is there, yeah, there's something in the left hand of the piano and the way it interacts with the bass and the way it's mixed. And it just like distorts
3: Gimme like, Shelter has the yeah, really uh-huh. low end piano as well on the hits. Don't don't. Totally. It's very heavy but like, piano. But there's it's something cool. about
0: the way it hits where like it, it it it's not blown out, but it's still blown out. I feel you. Does that make any sense?
1: I just want to comment that it doesn't read this way to me now, but when I was 15 when I first heard this song, I thought it was extremely subversive. They're talking about coke, they're talking about sex. I'm just trying to put myself in the mindset of the actual record-buying public that was consuming this at the time, and I think it was they were playing up that kind of bad pushing, boy yeah, image, pushing it, yeah, and yep. you know they knew when to lean into
2: it, right? Even though it was mm-hmm. a construct. Well, I think Mick Jagger's always had that like sort of sex symbol, you know, kind of vibe, and I think that that tracks for sure. Which is
3: still kind of new in '69, '70, no. right? Like it wasn't necessarily as overt as it is nowadays. That that was still naughty they might have been banning you know album. well what was it let's spend the night together mm-hmm. yeah. when was that like he was they were on sullivan in 65 okay that was a little right? earlier but a little still old, earlier. yeah all right
0: but still like they're they're still you know they're leaning into the the trope the
1: sex drugs and rock and roll well done this is a fun little factoid but did y'all know that the stone's second number one single was a Lennon mccartney song no really i hmm. want to be your man they covered that they were the first to release it. In what? Fact. Really? Yeah. This manager that I said was always uh, arranging things behind the scenes convinced Lennon and McCarty to stop by the studio. This is in the early 60s. And give them. And they gave them that song. And they released it first. It went to number one. Beatles recorded it later. Wow. No
4: okay.
0: No idea. What is that? That's on like not. Meet the Beatles. It's I mean, on Meet the It's one, one right of the ahead, like, yeah, first yeah, couple. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Early. Yeah. Way I think early. that's the one that Springsteen did with uh McCartney at his like 80th birthday show.
3: I thought you meant Springsteen was in the studio as like a negative four year old. <laughs> no, no,
0: actually, actually, no, like, let's, no, <laughs> yeah, like, but let's, let's just, like, let's just, like, let's just get some more bad blood going. So, uh, on, I, it's like two or three days before McCartney's 80th birthday. He plays in, oh. uh, In Jersey, North Jersey, right? At like uh, East Rutherford, right? Wherever Mm -hmm. like the Giants and Jets used to play. Um, Meadowlands. Yeah, the Meadowlands. So a bunch of Jersey people show up. It's the last show of McCartney's tour, likely his last tour. (laughs) Springsteen is there. Bon Jovi is there. Springsteen comes out and does two songs with him, which include I Want to Be Your Man and Glory Days. Mm. Whereas Bon Jovi is brought out to lead the crowd in happy birthday and then it for Paul and then it's trotted off. What while a Paul kick does. in the
3: balls. Yeah. Poor oh, no, no. Bon Jovi. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. I feel
0: so bad for him. That this is, sucks. Yeah. Because he is so much is. more cool than Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, this seems totally inappropriate <laughs> and unjust. <laughs> anyway. you okay, Just, just stir it up. <laughs> oh,
1: just stir it up. Hey, just, we let the hate mail come in. Yes. Let's, let's go. Well, let's move right along (laughs) to another song called Monkey Man.
0: It's like the, the beginning is like, it's almost like an air song. And then that added tune guitar comes in and you're like, it's not an air song. And then it's all downhill from there. Dude, right? It grooves
2: so hard for the first like five <laughs> seconds. Like when I was listening to us, I was like, yes. And I was like, oh wait,
3: And then the four minute mark.
4: I'm a bucket. I'm
3: a Okay, Keith.
2: And then what feels like the eight minute mark. It's more.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm still a bucket.
2: Okay,
1: Keith. I listen, I I ultimately like the song, but I think the vocal is completely ridiculous. I agree. And let's talk about Mick the vocalist for a second. I was tempted to put Midlight Rambler, which is also on this album, on our list. It's not, but Mick is not an amazing rock vocalist. In the in the tradition of the ones we've we've spoken about, the John Fokertys. Who else is a great rock? Year. The Freddie, Freddie Mercury's, the Robert Plants yeah. of the world. Yeah, yeah. He ain't that. He yeah. ain't that. But I do think he has something else going on. Absolutely. Right? And so mm-hmm. he's he's. I think And in interviews they say he's got a real, obviously he's got a stage persona because he's in the most successful stage band yeah. of the last 40 years. Yes, <laughs> he's got Ever. a
0: vibe for sure. <laughs>
1: But they were saying that he is really good at playing off what the band is doing, improvising, finding places to get the melodies in. And he did write a lot of the material with, with, Jag, uh, with Richards, and they had a fluid kind of back and forth. So I just, I just wanted to like set the tone, but I think this is an example of... Here, here's one more thought to set you guys up. The Rolling Stones are about excess. And this song is a good example <laughs> Of that, especially vocally. But I think they were trying they were close to trying to get a sister song to give me shelter. It had some of those yes, dark and stormy absolutely. vibes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean yeah, the lyrics too. I mean, I'm like cold Italian
0: pizza or something. Yeah. <laughs> they start talking <singing> about eggs. <laughs> like what what are we doing here? <laughs> these are these are these are proto lyrics. So here's the way that works, right? Like, I you, like can, that. you can kinda like feel the way the words should come out of your mouth. Like you can like feel the pocket so you like freestyle that and then generally you go back and you write words. I, feel like, and that, it feels like I feel like that was
3: like Trey, Trey Anastasio's thing, right? Which yeah, is like the yeah. sound of the words I, is what's yeah, going to fit think, in. But and but then I think it's just. Like,
0: I think there's more, even like Paul McCartney and like scrambled eggs, like, you know, like, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories of this really important. You go back and write the words, <laughs> step. really important stuff, like essential step.
2: <laughs> I was also hoping that are you familiar with the uh, Toots and the Maytals song, Monkey Man? No. That Amy Winehouse actually used to cover it. What's funny is I saw that and was like, oh shit, is this like a cover of that re- old reggae song? So then I went and looked it up. I mean, it's obviously not the same song, but that was also released in 1969 another song called Monkey Man, really? which is wild to me. Hmm. Yeah.
3: yeah. As much as I crap on Mick Jagger, at the end of the day, I mean, he's, he's a bona fide rock star. Yep. It's like I can't take anything away from the guy's stage presence. I've never seen them live I would love to see them live although now maybe yeah maybe not. it's it's on, on on the outskirts there I, but I mean yeah the, the I I've seen singers even just in you know the, the cover circuit and everything and, and you know sometimes people aren't that good of a singer but if they have stage presence it works and I'm you know not that he's just stage presence but you know he's he's a rock star I'm not he, gonna yeah take he's, anything away he's from in
0: him. time and in tune I, yeah. I I definitely agree he is not Freddie Mercury Right, but he... That's not what the band needed, though. Yeah, exactly. Right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, totally. It's not his role. I mean, it's, yeah, it's clearly working for him. Right. Yeah, it's
1: clearly <laughs>
4: working.
1: Yeah. I just like, on one of the songs we didn't talk about, he's talking about how he's so hard to live with, and he says that he takes his tea at three. <laughs> like, that's the worst thing a British person <laughs> could do. <laughs> it's the most British thing ever.
4: Why are you so guys you getting the divorced? I have
0: heard, I don't know this to be true because I haven't talked to Billy Joel about it personally, but I've heard that the Billy Joel song Big Shot is about Mick Jagger. Which is just interesting, you know, next time you hear that song.
3: If they like ever shared the stage or like... Well, uh, I just don't know. I'm, as I'm thinking through the yeah, lyrics. Yeah, yeah. I, just,
0: I don't know in general, but it's very much about a very specific, like, yeah, you had to be a big shot last night. It's very much about like a specific event. event and a specific
3: yeah. person versus mm-hmm. like, oh, <laughs> yeah, some people think yeah. they're big shots. It's just like, no, you. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at you. Uh-huh. I'm writing this. He's yeah. a picture and now, of Mick Jagger. And now
0: you feel like shit. <laughs> yes, right the next day. And yes. if you're big time in Billy
2: Joel Man,
1: care. that's uh Yeah, right. <laughs> that's
2: that's yes. some heft right there. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. I think we've said enough about Monkey Man. Let's roll along to the last track on the album and the last song that we're gonna talk about today, which is You Can't Always Get
4: What You Want.
3: is what Mick Jagger sounds like and yeah. he sounds great on yep. this tune it sounds like he's just singing the song right he's not trying to put on some air uh so yeah and yeah this is one of the best songs. I also
2: love the pronunciation of get as a git it's I don't know why it's just like he just really God nails it that's funny you mentioned that
1: because when they enlisted the I believe it is a 60 person all adult Bach London Bach Choir and Wait, those are adults? Yes, they are. Those are not children. Correct. And then they double track those 60 You're people. Of course, oh, you got to double-track everything. God. But apparently there was a whole thing about the pronunciation of want, where Mick had to coach them extensively to remove their Britishness from their pronunciation of want. Which would have been the way he does it, which is war. <laughs> it just made me
2: think. What thinking, rhymes with cause that, cause <laughs> get
1: is kind of like an Americanism. Yeah, get, right, right. Yeah. So listen, I know this song has been played quite a few times in everyone's life, but I just got to say it's one of my favorite songs of all time. Yeah, it's damn yeah. good. It's,
2: yeah. I I do think there's, you know, we've said this many times, there's a reason that a lot of these songs get played so much. Like, it's it's a really good song. Something I also love about this song, I want to say it was like maybe me, you, and, and Mike. We, we might have been playing somewhere like a one of mike's shows and he was like hey let's do uh you can't always get what you want and i remember being like we can't how the fuck are we
4: gonna play why it's like all
2: complicated and it really was like two or three chords yep so like when you strip it down to its like bass components it's it's, it's a pretty simple song but i think with all the layering on top of it like it feels much more complex let's
1: let's give a compliment to some of that layering so they brought in this dude al cooper Session musician. I've heard and the name before within well, rock context. Perhaps right? most known for coming in, coming in cold to the Bob Dylan Highway 61 sessions, and then improvising the like a Rolling Stone organ riff, which is basically the song. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he it's plays like...
1: piano on this, organ on this, French horn on he this. He plays it. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yes, this dude's a beast. Yeah, I feel like Al. My dad had an Al Cooper, not
3: Alice, but an Al Cooper record. I so did he write? Yeah, I I think he he had. had I think he had a solo
1: career later, but he was also. You can imagine a a scenario where like
0: a dude comes in, plays in a live band, and I was like, then is immediate like, no, 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 I, I can lay down the piano too, and then way later in the session, he's like, yo. Well, we kicked this off as a French horn. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Is that a French horn in the corner? Yeah. Let me see that real what quick. We used yet? Well, right.
1: Apparently, he was miffed because the Stones asked him to write a whole horn arrangement for the opening, and he did, and I think recorded a whole horn arrangement, and then they cut it, and he uh, didn't. And when he got the record in the record store, it was just a French horn. He was expecting, horn. right, right. Yeah, another little tidbit about this one, and we can listen again to figure out how this works, but Jimmy Miller, the producer, ended up playing drums because Charlie Watts couldn't handle it. Oh. Poor,
2: couldn't handle poor what? Charlie, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but
1: apparently Charlie Watts was trying to play the beat and they were like trying to coach him to the right Wait, beat. Wait, are there drums in this song now that I think You can't get
4: what <laughs> you yeah. You can't always get what you want. You can't But if you try sometimes, will you just laugh back?
3: Charlie Watts couldn't handle Yo, he, that fill. The only thing I
0: can assume is that Charlie Watts was like so drunk he pooped
4: himself. <laughs> like, <laughs>
0: oh, like, poor like that's the only reasonable explanation. He right? was just unavailable. Right? I mean, that drum beat hits the kick drum on one every eight right. beats. Like, <laughs> I,
2: I, I will say it is definitely not a complicated beat, but I, there is a certain feel to it.
0: I'm not I'm yeah, saying it's hard, sure, but yeah. Yeah. There, there is, it's,
2: it's sort of like sits behind the beat a little bit. I
0: mean, maybe in a different way, like, yeah. you know, maybe in a different way, Charlie Watts sat out a couple of takes just because, you know, and like the one that made the record was a different take, you know, maybe it was like a low ego call. He's like, nah, the good take is the one that like, I was changing my pants. to
1: He might've just been checked out and said, like, you do it after after so much coaching from the booth. Like, how about you do it? All right. You know what? Screw it.
0: Plenty, Plenty of coke back there for me to do.
1: This song does one of the
3: best crescendos and outros is that a lot of times the mantra of just start throwing instruments at it to make it feel big. They do that, but it works. At the very end, it's like the choir comes back in. There's might even be bongos that start doing more, and it's just this beautiful cacophony that eventually hits a peak, and then it slowly fades as the track fades, and
1: it is just
2: fantastic. Well, it's a great album closer, too. Yes, yeah.
1: So that's, what to me, what justifies the long choir intro is the fact that they do bring it back, because it is a little much, and radio stations often cut that intro, but the fact that they bring it back at the end... Also, I wanted to mention, I don't have a timestamp, but I'm sure we can find it. I think there's also some good arrangement restraint being used here, where it feels like the song kind of ramps up to a a peak, and then you're kind of gravity falling down like a roller coaster back into the pit. Maybe I just wanted to mention one more personal anecdote. I mean, I think I like it a lot because it's a great production, but it's also about yearning and not getting what you want and then accepting it.
0: It's it's a fucked up truism. Which is real. Yes. yes.
1: This is kind of the realest thing about life. Now, Uh I've heard, the Rolling Stones didn't say this, but I heard that it was kind of considered their response to Hey Jude. But I just don't think Hey Jude, Hey Jude's great, but I don't think Hey Jude has that level of, of realism to it and that's what I like about this song
0: I agree
2: yeah maybe in it's like grandioseness it, it could be a approximation of that but yeah it's they have different a much different angle
1: you know before we close it out also I wanted to mention we didn't talk about the title and its relationship to the Beatles other than Alan's quick throwaway joke cuz there's, there's, <laughs> there's a little bit of a mystery here. <laughs> that was a closer what are you yeah, talking on, about I've been working on that one right. for weeks <laughs> Which is, I don't think they were aware of the song Let It Be when they titled it this. Oh. Because it wasn't out yet. So if they knew about it, it would have only been through their friendship with the Beatles. So it is possible. But the story they always give is about some some time where the control booth was telling Keith to keep playing the acoustic guitar. And he literally was bleeding from his fingers. And he said, let it bleed. So, but it's a it's a little it's a little confusing to put together. I tried to construct a timeline. They definitely titled it this before "Let It Be" came out into the world. But he was drug buddies with John Lennon, so it is possible. I just don't know. That would All be right.
2: I, that would be supremely weak to do that. I feel like that intentionally. Like it's I, I'm trying to think if it, yeah if like a friend was band was like hey we're doing this album here's what it's called and I was just like hey let me rip that off wholesale. I'm starting a, a band letters. called Sega. So <laughs> screw you guys. <laughs> <laughs>
4: can we still have the logo? Right.
2: <laughs> yeah. So
1: I don't think they did that, but that was a. I mean, that was a conce- misconception I had then for a long time that it was just a direct riff on that. But the timeline just doesn't support that.
0: Yeah, I can see that. What do you think George Sukalos thinks about this? Who? <laughs> the Ancient Aliens hair guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs>
2: Wait, is that the guy in all the memes with his hair? Like- yes. <laughs> i got to write that name down. That is the <laughs> ultimate name to pull out of
3: your ass. Wait, who? You know. Ancient Aliens.
4: I got some I'm serious you were
3: about
2: us knowing that name. <laughs> I can see the panic in Rob's face. Am I supposed to know who this guy is? Uh, yeah, he's the horn player. Okay. Well,
1: I think that's all for Let It Bleed. I think all that remains now is for us to inscribe our official votes into the record books. For time in memoriam for all posterity until the aliens come to our ruined society <laughs> and look over these scrolls and judge us accordingly.
0: Gold plates, Doug. We got to prank Gold plates. <laughs> Keep talking about this.
1: Is Let It Bleed a must listen album before you die, Adam?
3: A couple thoughts here. So, similarly, how they said that Sparks was the best British band to come out of America. I can kind of see a world where the Rolling Stones were the best American band to come out of England uh, based on this album. Uh, I thought there were a couple clunkers on here, but the fact that two of the songs on a nine-song album are potentially two of my favorite songs of all time, it's in. It's a definite yes for me.
0: Yeah, this is an easy yes for me as well. Um, I I think this, for me, sort of starts a period of the Rolling Stones career where I, I sort of love all of the B sides. I, I a, and maybe that also speaks to how popular the Stones were. That I'm so sick of the A sides because like the radio just force fed them to me my whole life. That's not the Rolling Stones' fault, right? Maybe it is, but like I'll give them a, a pass. This is a yes for me. Um, and I, 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 as much as I actually feel very conflicted about the Rolling Stones, but this is a, this is a yes.
2: Yeah. I mean, same here. Definitely. Yes. It's a, it's a bit of a spam sandwich a little bit where it's sort of bookended with some great songs in the middle is, you know, all right. I I think there's, there's some good, there's some not so good, but it's great. Definitely listen to it. You've already have listened to the great (laughs) songs, but uh, do it again. I like diving into
1: the deep cuts, the Rolling Stones. It's a definite yes for me because the reasons described, it has two absolute world-class production songs on it, at least. And I think the other songs are actually quite good. I enjoyed listening to the lesser-known tunes this week, for the most part. And it kicks off, as Phil said, it kicks off an era of the Rolling Stones that I really like. Now, I don't think this is the best Rolling Stones album. In fact, I don't even... This might be number three, maybe. So they do have a lot of great material. I feel it's part of my job to bring them back into our generation's consciousness. Okay. Okay. We're going to round it. I guess all that remains. So you're on the list, Rolling Stones. One more accolade to add to your your your, your drug basket.
2: They've been waiting 40 years of touring, yes. 50 years of 60. I don't even know what the hell it is. to
0: Just for that. <laughs> just for that accolade. They've,
1: yeah, been, yeah. they've been a band for almost, no, for 60 years. Yeah,
0: yeah. Maybe it's wow. a 60-year anniversary. Is yes. Charlie Watts still alive? No, no he just
2: sure died. It. Okay. All right, all right. I mean, if you start with 40 and have to keep going up in 50, <laughs> 60, I don't <laughs> know.
1: Okay, all that remains, I believe, is for us to talk about what we're going to be listening to next week. So we're going to give Ye Old Albinator with an E at the end a spin and find out what we shall be listening to. Drum roll up, please. Tori Amos, Little Earthquakes.
2: Uh, It's a departure. That's a departure. I've never
3: listened to a Tori Amos album. I have just no no specific reason. Just
2: never uh, was in my purview. It's funny. I know Tori Amos. I mean, everyone knows, but I don't even think I can. She lives name. next door, right? We yeah. Go, <laughs> we have. A, like, wait, you know Hope's her? Inviter. Oh the yeah, right. Can be our first right. uh, actual you know musician guest. But yeah, I couldn't name a single song though.
1: I know I don't remember even uh, what it, her hit it's, was. It's been a
0: really long time since I've listened to Tori Amos. Maybe fifteen, twenty years. So this will be this will be an interesting. Sort of like yeah. You know, I was Re- never re-brow. a fourteen-year-old
1: girl, so I missed this whole movement.
2: <laughs> you didn't rock that after uh, Bell and Sebastian. <laughs> How dare you,
0: <laughs> Adam? Adam, you should you should wake up, like wake up your Indigo girls.
3: Oh, that your inner indigo. My indigo yes. This is more
0: like, this is going to be like adjacent to that. Like, okay. It's not, it's not in that it's, it's a different vibe, but it's, it's in that ballpark. So. All right. All right. I'm but very minus excited. the harmonies, just one voice. Oh. And I know that's your favorite part. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, your favorite part of that band. Take it's that out. It's not bad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so this oh, is some um, Crosby stills. Um, now now I don't know what to think. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, this has been a thrilling live episode sitting yeah. here with you in yeah. person lovely seeing you all but we're gonna we're gonna call it if you think we're right think we're wrong or if you're a rolling stones stan or if you are a hater you can let us know at 1001 album complaints at com. we will read all of those we'll take them into our hearts we'll throw them away accordingly
3: looking forward to tom writing one in for this episode <laughs> exactly
4: It's from uh, right, exactly.
1: (laughs) Who's Tomas from where? (laughs) He would. Okay, all right. Well, we're gonna call it for this week on 1001 Album Complaints. For everyone here, I've been Rob. I'm Adam.
0: I'm Phil,
2: and I'm Alan.
1: Well, we all need someone (laughs) we can boo on.